All right, listeners, welcome to a very special bonus episode of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sitman, your podcast co-host, and I'm here with my great friend, Sam Etherbell. Hey, Matt. Hey, Sam. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to be talking to you again so soon after our uh, our last bonus episode on Wednesday. I know. It's been a lot of talking to Sam on the phone this week. Tough, <laughs> week. <laughs> tough, tough for both of us. We just wanted to do a quick introduction for this episode, which was a really fun very insightful, at times moving conversation with Joe Calvello, who was John Fetterman's director of communications, and as he has on his Twitter bio, John's consigliere. <laughs> I think, Sam, we had a lot of fun with this one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's that very atypical Know Your Enemy episode, but it's just us kind of pretty excitedly, you know, talking to someone who helped a candidate win that we were really rooting for. So a bit of a softball interview. It was a super <laughs> softball interview. Exactly. So if you hate that, then don't listen. But it was really interesting. We did get to talk about some some interesting stuff about sort of left populism and how John won and about his stroke and how the campaign adjusted and after that happened and about Oz and how they characterized Oz throughout the campaign and about the Twitter feed yeah. and all that stuff is in here. We should note that we recorded this interview with Joe while he was on the Fetterman victory bus. That's right. I said, you're coming from the campaign bus? He said, no, it's a victory bus. <laughs> so as a result of that, the, the the sound quality is maybe not all the way up to snuff in every moment, but I'm sure Jesse has done the best that he can to make it listenable. And yeah, the other thing to mention is that we did record a general and much much longer bonus episode about the midterms where Matt and I offered our takes, hot takes. <laughs> That's right. But we wanted to share this one with all of you. We didn't want to put it behind a paywall. We thought it was a really important conversation. We had a lot of fun with it, but also there was a lot of good stuff on the Fetterman strategy, you know, appealing to working people. A lot of good stuff, and we just thought it was too important to put behind a paywall. So if you do want to subscribe to Know Your Enemy, listen to the bonus episode Sam just described, along with all the other ones, you can do that at patreon.com slash knowyourenemy. Yeah. And for $5 a month, you get all of those bonus episodes, and for $10 a month, you get a free digital subscription to Descent, the sponsor of this podcast, and our wonderful partners who we love to be associated with. It's a great week to subscribe to the Patreon, because you get to hear our, our takes on the midterms, which went a lot better than we thought they would. So do that. But you won't have to subscribe to listen to this episode, as you know, because you're listening to it now. And we should just get right to it. Here's our conversation with Joe Cavello. Right, listeners, let's get started. We have a very special guest with us, Joe Cavello, the uh, communications director and consigliere of the John Fetterman campaign. He's joining us from the victory bus on his way back to Philadelphia. Joe, welcome to Know Your Enemy. It is an honor and a pleasure to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Joe, are you a listener? I am a listener. I'm a friend of the pod. I, I'll give a quick shout out. Jonah Furman got me on to you guys. I don't know if you know Jonah. I love Jonah. He turned me on to you guys. Said it's the most important podcast you listen to. For listeners, if you want Jonah Furman content, you should definitely subscribe to his newsletter. It's called Who Gets the Bird? And it's all about labor conflict in America. Like, if you want to know who's about to go on strike at any given day, then you can read Jonah's newsletter to find out. Well, Joe, you know, first question just for listeners what does a director of communications do? Oh, man, that's a good question. What was your job on the campaign? It was a little bit of everything, overseeing anything written that went out, working with John on 
crafting the message, but the beauty of a guy like John is he's so authentic and so good. He has his message. It was a little tinkering around the edges. I had to deal with the national press, the local press, all that fun stuff. But yeah, a lot of back and forth with reporters working. We had a wonderful comms team. Big shout out to Nick Gavio, our rapid response guru. Um, but yeah, I spent a lot of time one-on-one with John, just like jamming ideas out too. Of like, how are we going to talk about inflation? How are we going to talk about corporate greed? All that good stuff. How much credit can you take for the extremely high quality Twitter feed of the, <laughs> of the Fetterman campaign? It was a team effort. Whether it's our digital director, Sophie, who was wonderful. You know, I had some good spice in the timeline. I'll take a little bit, but you know, <laughs> our uh, Nick Gavio had some great tweets. But the irony is, John, I think the first meme we had that took off was Steve Buscemi, how do you do, fellow Pennsylvanians? And that was John. That was John? He is, oh, my he is, God. He is the poster in chief. Like, it wasn't like you ever had to go to him. You never had to go to him and explain, hey, John, this is what a meme was. Like, he was coming up with fire. And oh, then, like, damn. you know, our head writer, Kip, he came up with the Snooky stuff. He had a lot of great tweets. Oh, the Snooky thing was so good. As a Sopranos guy, I reached out to, you know, Steve Van Zandt. But, like, it was a total, total team effort from, like, across departments. Our, like, deputy campaign manager had a great one about, like, graphic design is my passion. It was totally collaborative. It was fun. But, like, it all started with the big man because, like, he likes to post. And it was never like we had to explain to him what was fun. People would go to him with memes and, like, the highest compliment he'd give would be like, okay, that's good. (laughs) For us, it was always let's be creative. Let's have fun defining odds. John was off the with the stroke we had to do this in a creative way and like it was funny but it was the core of our message the core of our message to start phase one was this guy is not one of us right that's what right. the summer was about and it was defining him as a rich celebrity outsider and it wasn't that he was turkish it was that he was from new jersey and we basically yeah. did what republicans do to us which is othering him we othered him as a millionaire wow. new jersey yeah. mansion owner and we worked yes. there to do that and we did a lot of humor I mean, it was never mean. It was John would say it was never mean. It was only true. Right. There was a, a pretty good New Yorker piece, I think, that came out this morning that Eliza Griswold wrote. And your campaign manager, Brendan McPhillips. The smartest guy in politics. Let it be known. <laughs> I'm glad he was working for John. One of the things he said was, we wanted to make sure that we ran John's campaign. Not a D campaign, not a DC campaign, but John's campaign. And I think already, you know, the kind of ads and, and Twitter dunks and defining odds we're talking about, that really comes through. But what does that mean to run John's campaign? What was like messaging John's campaign, not to a generic Democrat campaign or, or like a DC consultant campaign? What was John's campaign? I mean, it was John. He was the X Factor, right? There was no one else like him in ideology and size stature, you know, all the jokes aside, like it was authentically and rawly him. We, we would call it ruthlessly authentic, is how John and I would talk about it. We'd call the Republicans be ruthlessly vicious, but it's like, we need to be ruthless. They're so being authentic and for fighting for working people, because that's what this was all about. And like, doing it his way meant having fun, doing means. It also meant that our closing message was all about taking on Washington and corporate greed and price gouging. It wasn't one or the other. We like to think of it as walking and chewing gum. We had the fun, we communicated online, and then we ran, I would say, the most deep definition of what left populism TV ads can look like. Talking about forgotten communities, talking about how, hey, they're laughing at you, identifying the enemy as the people in D.C. or the rich people who've sold out your towns, that they're laughing at you because you don't have a fighter. John will be that fighter. And that's what he believes. 
I have to say, like, Matt and I have talked about this. We talked about it earlier in the campaign about Fetterman in this vein, but also we, we are always just kind of preoccupied with this thing, which is like, you know, after Trump won... And also after Bernie, you know, did so well in 2016, there was this moment where all of progressive democratic campaign world was like, okay, how do we do this? How do we do left populism? And there were like a few candidates who came along that tried to do that, which is sort of just as you're saying, name the enemy, like, don't be apologetic about who you are, show that you're authentically about this cause about the working class, and that like Democrats really can do that. And like sort of ceding the ground of populism entirely to the right is a huge mistake. And to me, it feels like for some reason, the previous efforts at that, like some people got closer and some people did better than people expected. But there was really never like a proof positive of that method. And that's one of the reasons that I was so excited about the Fetterman campaign all along was just like, they're really doing it. They're actually just doing it. What do you think that you guys did differently in that vein? Or what were the conditions that made it possible for that kind of left populist campaign to really succeed? There you go. Now you speak my language. What were the concrete conditions? We were able to do this because this is a guy, as soon as he was elected lieutenant governor, what was the first thing he did in his official capacity was do a 67 county listening tour. We made sure to go to these counties that were fucking deep red. Sure, we go to places. Fuck, there hasn't been a politician here, of Republican or Democrat, in like 15 years. Right. And like, yeah. we're not saying we got all, we didn't flip those counties, but if you look at the results, we jammed them up and we had better margins than Biden there. And that's because at the end of the day, and like this isn't fucking complicated, and a lot of people can fucking get it, is that like voters deserve to be respected and they deserve to be listened to. And John always showed up and listened to. And if I ever was, if, you know, John and I were driving to an event in fucking Elk County, I said, oh, John, you know, it's Elk County. Let's not talk about abortion here. He'd be like, get the fuck out of the car, you're fired. He never <laughs> twisted himself and did not. He was going to say, this is where I stand. And there were people who would come up to him and say, hey, I'm with you on A, B, and C, but you're not, I'm not with you in X, Y, and Z. But you know what? Because you're always going to fight to make sure that shit is made here in America, to make sure that you are backing working people, I'm with you, even though I may not agree with you on abortion. Because he right. was at least honest. People inside the Beltway forget that just, like, giving people respect and listening to them goes a far fucking way. And, like, yeah. he got that. And it wasn't me or other staffers. It was him who got that. And we took our notes from him because, like, he's been to every county. Through the primary, I mean, I remember we were in fucking Smithport, which is, like, three <laughs> hours. It, it's a town of, like, maybe 1,600. We're in a wood-paneled fire hall. And we have 200 people on a Saturday. And this is before we were, like, recruiting for events. And there were like a bunch of truckers there. It was like, we just were like, we were, you know, longtime Trump guys. I don't know if I'll vote for John, but like no one else shows up. I'm going to come and listen to him at least. Like he's got the backbone to come in here at least tell us where he stands. It goes back to the issue of just he's wanting to be listened to and respected and not lied to. He's not a guy who wants to be everything for everyone. You know, it's like, here's where I stand. I'm not going to break in these issues. Maybe you're with me on a couple of them. Maybe you're with me on a lot of them. People respect that. They're not looking for every box to be checked. They're looking for a guy who has a backbone. And again, all of this is so fucking cliche, but no one has the balls to actually go and do it and put miles in their truck and talk to people. Right. I, and it was funny today, we're on the bus, John's not on the bus, just some staff. We stop in uh, Somerset, we get off the bus, there's a guy waiting for us, and I was like, oh, John's not on the bus. He's like, oh, I want to take a photo with him and shake his hand. He's like, I didn't vote for him, but he's like, you know, that's how, he's like, I respect him. He's like, I want to, I want to tell him congrats. Like, I voted for us, but like, I want to tell him congrats. Like, Wow. The electorate is so much more complex than people like to pretend it isn't. 
You show up, you listen, you tell the truth, you gain respect, you give respect. Like, it's as simple as that. And that's why I think no one else got it, because other politicians who tried to do it never did the fucking, tr- they didn't put the thousands of miles on their truck like John did. Yeah. When you go and do this, you hear about people's struggles, you hear about their lives, yeah. and that changes your worldview of like, fuck, when some consultant telling me, oh, we should be for globalization, Jack's like, well, no, I'm thinking of the guy in Spetport who's like, we can't afford to have our towns hollowed out anymore. It's really simple, and people don't get it, and he fucking gets it. I was going to ask, Fetterman is, I've, I've followed him for years, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania. He's the the kind of candidate I'd always hope would try to run this campaign in Pennsylvania. But, you know, since you mentioned, like, you know, driving around to these small towns, uh, going into the wood paneled hall and talking to the truckers, for people just watching the campaign from the outside, what did you kind of learn about the state? What were people telling you? Was there anything that surprised you? Anything that those of us on the outside who, you know, didn't work for the campaign, weren't a part of those conversations? Like, what did you learn? What did John learn? What did you learn about Pennsylvania? What was on the mind? of voters I, I learned a lot just about the struggles how hard it is in these small towns and how these forgotten communities were hollowed out by people by multinational corporations or hedge funds they can make a buck and like these are people's lives this isn't a fucking economic stat number these are families like right. and john gets that because he remembers everyone that he talks to he remembers who he's fighting for it's why we opened up the first day of the campaign John did an op-ed. It could have ran anywhere in the country, anywhere in the state. He did it. I can't remember what news network it was, but it was like an agreement. So what run in like 16 rural papers, you know, like that's how he opened his messages, talking to these people. And again, we didn't win these counties, but we did a hell of a lot better than other Democrats. And it's a big reason why we won. One of the things that's so striking about the showdown between Oz and Fetterman and why that choice from the beginning to be like, we're going to say that Dr. Oz is not one of us is so, it hits so hard. You know, sort of carpetbagger kind of tarring of your opponent can be very powerful. But that message doesn't necessarily land if the candidate doesn't embody like all of the opposite qualities of like being what he appears to be. It's kind of like the story of this campaign almost feels too perfect. Like something that Matt has always been talking to me about. It's just like Fetterman is the real deal. Like he looks like a guy who is the guy that he is, you know? There's like no question about it. It's not a put on. Maybe the question is like, how do you navigate? How did you guys navigate the, the sort of space between like authenticity is our goal and authenticity is our brand, and Oz is so obviously fake. Was it just sort of just heightening the contradictions? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was heightening the contradictions, but like it gets bigger, and like, yeah, it was a great matchup, right? First ad we ran on TV, John says direct to camera, he's not one of us. But like, it's, it's also bigger than that. That was phase one. And it's not, okay, so he's not one of us, okay. Well, he's not one of us, so plus he doesn't understand our struggles like John does. And because he doesn't right. understand our struggles, he's not going to fight for us. He doesn't even know how to fight for us. Fuck, this guy doesn't even know how to grocery shop, let alone fight for us. He can't be trusted in D.C. And that was the symphony we were singing in October, finally. Closing out our closing message about corporate greed and odds, and like, he won't fight for us. But it started with that initial contradiction of John as the embodiment of Pennsylvania and Oz as an out-of-state rich loser. This guy doesn't even understand what the fuck inflation is. He can't fight for you to bring down prices. 
This guy can't name the fucking grocery store. He's buying raw fucking vegetables to eat like a freak. You know, he looked like a Martian <laughs> tech video. The free to say that. That was a gift to you guys. John would always joke. He's like, I can't believe this is an oppo. He's like, are you sure, Tony? He's our, our uh, researcher. He's like, like, Tony didn't film this. He's like, are you sure? <laughs> that not being one of us, it's such a fascinating thing for me because I know being from the heart of Blair County, right outside Altoona, that kind of not being one of us, that can take like sort of bad forms too. Obviously, yeah. But one of the things I, I loved is that can be harnessed for good to say like, we're going to take care of our own. And yes. one of the most disgusting moments of any of the campaigns kind of we've been watching the past few months was when J.D. Vance in Ohio, probably in some places not that different from a lot of the places you visited across the border in Pennsylvania, said that Biden was intentionally killing MAGA voters by flooding their communities with fentanyl. And I'm like, you know, that's one way you can uh, sort of harness that, you know, maybe suspicion of, of other people, people yeah. out in D.C., you know, people who aren't like you. Or people coming over the border. But that's not what your campaign did. And I just wonder, like, it seemed like part of the other aspect of the left populism that Sam was describing is instead of responding to these people who are struggling and might be afraid and might not know what to think, instead of feeding them the worst poison, it was like, no, something better is possible. Something better, but it's something real, because there's a reason people are getting fucked. It's not, and it's not because there's Biden flooding whatever the hell bullshit on Fox News. It's because these towns have been hollowed out. So it's, it, 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 yeah. it's, so it's not all doom and gloom. It's about something better, agreed, but it's also like, here's the, tr there's a reason this town does not look like and feel like it did 30 years ago because of globalization, because of bad trade deals, because of corporate greed, because of tax cuts for the, the rich, or we were all left to hold the bag. Like, yeah. the other side does it. They just lie and make up dog whistles or fake fucking shit. Yes. And it doesn't have to be this way. So it's about right. telling the truth. It all goes back to that authenticity of like, John's going to tell you the fucking truth is, and the truth is, there's a reason these towns are forgotten. There's a reason they're hollowed out. And it's not because of whatever the hell Sean Hanley's bitching about. It's because of decades of bad trade deals and globalization. It's because we have gutted the working class. We've gutted union membership in this country and given people fucking bones to chew on. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say my experience of the the end of the Trump 2016 campaign was becoming increasingly like terrified of the fact that Trump was the only person who was even using the phrase working class. I mean, I remember in his last speech before the election in 2016, you know, the day before Trump said tomorrow the American working class will strike back. Mind boggling. Holy shit. You know, Trump is obviously a total fucking fraud, you know, a billionaire, doesn't understand remotely any of the struggles of the people that he's talking about and sort of inviting into his campaign. But that's a real message. And I mean, I remember when I worked on a fir my first campaign in 2010, we weren't supposed to say working class. The thing that was like sort of pushing the edge of it was we were saying working families, you know. We weren't only saying middle class, which is what most Democratic politicians were saying at the time. But we would say, oh, we're going to fight for working families because we were progressives. But like the fact that Trump could completely own the lane in 2016 of the working class, that's kind of the moment where I sort of felt like, okay, something's fucked here. Like something is really deeply fucked in the way that Democrats are running their campaigns. And I, I was so desperate for something like 
the campaign you're describing, people really do have animosities. They have resentments. But those resentments don't have to be directed against people below them or at the same level as them. I think the thing that is missed is people have a right to be fucking pissed off and right to be resentful. They've been getting screwed. And that's where I feel like so many people in the Beltway in either party don't understand. Like, there's a reason people are angry. Shit is not what it once was. And that's fine. But, like, there's a re- let's be truthful about that. And, like, let's be honest with them. And, like, instead of doing racism and all this horrible stuff Trump and these other phonies do, it's disgusting. But, I mean, every time you turn on, like, Tucker, you hear him railing against the elite. And then the problem is that, like, because Democrats have come to associate that language with a kind of white nationalist politics, like, the consultant class of the Democratic Party seems to be just so skittish about embracing language like that, but putting it towards a, like, liberatory class warfare style, solidaristic message. Totally. And it's like, we would talk about just workers at large. We would talk about working families. We would use the word working class. It was more just workers, like working people, like People yeah. are busting their ass trying to get by, except for the most of us are. You know, speaking of uh, Fetterman's authenticity and, and telling the truth, you know, Sam and I talked about this uh, in a recent bonus episode about the midterms, how moving it was for Fetterman to be honest about what happened with his stroke, the struggles of recovery, using the, the captions, the closed captions during the debate. I thought it was really kind of beautiful that he turned that into, this campaign is for people who have been knocked down and had to get back up. I did too. I'm still getting back up. And I'm just really interested in, as someone on the inside, what was it like to experience that? First of all, working for him, working closely with him, but also what were the kind of conversations or decisions that had to be made about what you say about how he's doing or how honest you are with voters. Talk about that some. It was, you know, to go from me camped out at the Lancaster Holiday Inn for four or five nights going to the hospital every day, the election night on Tuesday and being in the room with them was a fucking jerk. You know, getting a little, mm-hmm. little yeah. emotional, forgive me. He's the bravest man I've ever met, man. He, he took his time to recover and then he, he had to recover in public the rest of the time. He'd ask the crowds at these rallies, say, how many of you have had a health challenge? You put your hand up. Yeah. And he's like, all right, he's going to be like, keep your hand up. How many of your parents? How many of your grandparents? God forbid your children. And then by the end of it, everyone's hand would be up. And he'd be like, I'm so sorry you've gone through this. Like, I'm going through this now. And I hope you never have a doctor in your life who's rooting for you to fail. And I hope you have the same health care that I have that is able to make me get this recovery. You know, it was it was all that authenticity of being so fucking raw and just like leveling with people. And he would say, he would say also, he's like, I'm sure there's some people here filming me, hoping that I'll mess up a word. He's like, guess what? I'm going to mess up a word. That's the nature of this. You know, like it was all so raw and like him. It was never going to, he would never allow it to be anything else or do anything else. One of the things, too, I thought, especially when Dr. Oz seemed to try to, you know, use the stroke against Fetterman in a kind of cheap way, I just think about where I grew up. You know, the number of people who did backbreaking work, manual labor, worked in factories, and have had a heart attack, have a bad back, are struggling with their own bodies in certain ways. I was just like, Dr. Oz doesn't know what he's fucking with. Well, it's just another example. I mean, look, this is a whole thing. He doesn't know what he's fucking with. And when Rachel Tripp made that comment that if John Fetterman maybe ate a vegetable, he wouldn't have had a stroke. Like, that just showed not only is the candidate not from Pennsylvania, the staff doesn't understand Pennsylvania. In PA, 
no one's rooting for their neighbor to stay down. You guys, we may have disagreements, but nobody's rooting to be like, oh, I hope this guy stays sick. He's the son of a gun. Like, we're all humans after all. And they just did not get that in a fundamental level that they felt they could mock us. His team sent out these nasty press releases about the debate saying, oh, if John needs a medical staff on site, we'll allow it. If he needs a earpiece of staff, can tell him what to say, we'll allow it. Like, it's like, that's what humans across America are like. No one's that, like, vile. People want people to get better. We, we like our neighbors. Like, fuck, man. And they just, yes. uh, I don't know if it was Oz himself or his staff, but it was gross. It's something that Matt and I talked about a little bit on our podcast about the midterms, but I'd love to hear you respond to this stuff too. It's like, when I was watching the victory speech, I was so moved, including by the way that, you know, you can see that John takes some effort to communicate in a way that was much more easy for him in the past. He's also this huge, like powerful looking man, you know, and for him to display unabashedly his vulnerability and a certain kind of frailty and then ask for the audience to respond in kind with generosity and kindness toward him. I found that to be like maybe something I hadn't seen in American politics in a long time. Being vulnerable, being fucking vulnerable. Vulnerable, right? yeah. I mean, this guy's whole brand was tough guy, toughest guy, Rust Belt, but like he rewrote the playbook of everything. He rewrote it again post-stroke. It's like, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to be real with the people. Because I know the people and I trust that they'll respect it at least. They may be worried, they may not vote for me, but they'll at least expect that I'm here, I'm fucking trying, man. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was something that was so striking to me is that actually when you ask people to find that part of their heart that is generous and which cares, which is like, you know, the most essential part of their heart, the people respond to it, you know? I mean, emails flood into people talking about how they relate I had a heart attack. I had this. I had that. I'm so proud of you. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. Like, it was yeah. just the outpouring of support before using the public trail was something. Then once we got out there, it would be people waiting to get the rope line and talk to him so they could say, I've been there. Or my mom's been there. Or, my son's been there. And like, you're so brave for doing this. Like, we have your mm -hmm. back, John. Or like, I remember for me even, you know, I was in Harrisburg maybe a week before the election. Little old lady pulled me aside. She's like, let him know that I'm praying for him. Like, let him know. Boom. She's like, you take care of him. You have to take care of him, Joe. But like, we <laughs> oh, have his back. So it was, it, it's just like, and again, it's like the opposite of what the Beltway think humans are like. Mm -hmm. You know, it's polarizing us. But like, people have hearts, man. We're human. Like, not to get too mushy-gushy, but like, it made me believe <laughs> deeply in humanity in like a big way. And I am known as an abrasive prick in the campaign. So, like, it's tough if I get pushy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, one of the things I loved about Fetterman, but I wondered how it kind of played in the campaign, was that, you know, as lieutenant governor, he chaired the state's board of pardons. And so I wondered when, like, crime started, especially, you know, into the fall became a potential flashpoint, an issue that Republicans were pressing, like knowing that John had done that work, which left him vulnerable to attacks on that issue. How were you uh, all thinking about that? I mean, they spent $100 million, the mo most money ever spent in a Senate race, only on negative ads. Not, that doesn't include positive. $100 million hitting John on crime, on pardon they tried to bury us alive and he didn't flinch and he told me i mean when i started he told me during the absolute blitzkrieg they put on us in september it was like i would never trade an office or a title for doing the right thing and he stood by that he didn't blink he never gave an inch 
and like Lieutenant Governor, which like between us, oh, and the listeners, I guess, between us and the <laughs> listeners, not the most powerful, you know, office in the, in the state. But oh, he, no? he, saw, <laughs> he saw that he realized that, wait, I chair the board of parties. I have a lot of power. And he used those gears in a way that had not been done before ever. The amount of pardons he pushed through for not violent offenders, for old offenders, for the wrongly accused. He did whatever he can because he's someone, he understands at a base level that there's only a few of us like him who will ever hold any power in the American political system. And if you don't use that, why the fuck are you doing this? Why are you running for office? And he understood it was going to be a risk. He, he, I mean, there were two, two gentlemen, the Horton brothers in Philadelphia. Everyone should look up the story. Two of the most brilliant people I've ever met. They were wrongfully accused. And John, he made it his, made it his mission to get them clemency. And free. They were sentenced to life without parole. Get them freed from prison. He did. And he, he told me, Joe, he's like, it was never lost on me that their last name was Horton. That they're going to really Horton me with the liberal Horton brothers. But he's like, yeah, I don't care that. because these men are innocent. And like, if that means I can't go to DC, fuck it. But if it means they can walk free and see their families, that's worth it. Like yeah. it, it was for me, it told me everything there is to know about this man, you know, about like what matters, how to wield power in an effective and creative way and not back down. And at the same time, like we ran on our record on crime as Mayor Braddock, John worked with the police. He worked with the community. I mean, he, this man ran for office because two of his, he was a GED instructor in Braddock. And two of his students were killed in gang violence. And he ran right. for office to stop the violence. And under his leadership, working with the police, he was technically chief law enforcement officer and working with the community. But he went five and a half years without a loss of life to gun violence, which has never happened before or since. Wow. So it's not an either or again. It's not, it, we like, it's walking and chewing gum. It's not, oh, it has to be this or soft on crime or tough on crime. It's no, get real. Let's be clear. Working class people, every people deserve to be safe in their community. Democrats need to get that. People deserve to be safe where they live, where they work. And John gets yeah. that. But at the same time, we don't need to have people who smoke pot locked up or people who are wrongfully in prison locked up. It's not, again, it's not binary. It's, let's, do, let's use a holistic, real-world approach, and that's what John did. But, I mean, hell, they hammered us on crime, and we did not flinch. And I think that one of the exit polls had it. In Pennsylvania, more people trusted John Crime than they did on I after a hundred million dollars of street that has never been seen before. Wow. I think a lot of what we're talking about here is I mean, if people are listeners to our podcast and they've listened to us sort of like fanboying about the Fetterman campaign all this time and this stuff about kind of the authenticity and how he manages to get around what are perceived as like impassable problems when it comes to something like crime, public safety versus clemency or whatever. And the solution is to sort of, you know, just be honest and like talk from your experience. Is there something about what was happening in this campaign that people on the outside, people reading about it, following it, maybe closely, especially nationally, like that didn't get like, is there something about this campaign that like never broke through to the mainstream kind of appraisal of what was going on? What, what would people be surprised to hear about like what this campaign consisted of for you? I mean, the amount of times I had to tell reporters, who do you think the people of Pennsylvania are going to trust on a crime? John Fetterman, who literally has a, is a Democrat who's actually taken on crime and made sure the community's safe, or some fucker in Gucci loafers in a five fucking thousand dollar <laughs> suit. That's probably cheaper, Dr. Oz. Probably closer to $15,000 suit. So like the crime thing, they didn't get it. 
on the stroke. Like, let's talk about the debate. Let's go in. Let's talk about the debate, yeah. right? Like, John fundamentally thought the people deserve a debate. Is it going to be tough? Yes. But I'm running for the United States Senate. People deserve a debate. And it was, it was fucking tough. I took that podium and I went out there and I was like, we won the debate. And lo and behold, no one believed me. And we did win the debate because Oz fucked up on abortion and we held our own. And we, within, that's how it shows how scrappy and wonderful, like, like I said, Sophie and people on our digital team and Brendan yeah. and Rebecca. We raised $2 million in 24 hours and we had an ad up on television within 24 hours of Oz's remarks about abortion. People, it's all yeah. about, and yet all the stories about like them is pissing themselves and wetting the bed over this shit. Like, yeah. no one gets it. Like, no one gets it. Like, and I'm like, I've lived in a lot of DC. I've done campaigns. I was with Keith Ellison in the 18 and I was AG race. I was with Bernie in 20. Like, I've been in a lot of DC. Like, no one gets the real world sometimes, like the media. Yeah. And like, they yeah. miss the forest <laughs> for the trees. They don't understand how, like, humans operate. And, like, a lot of people left that debate. He made it clear he's going to fight for me. He's so fucking committed to fighting for me. He did this thing that was really fucking hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of what we're talking about is, like, just John Fetterman. And we should be because John Fetterman is what made all of this possible. Exactly. And, like, this conversation doesn't even make any sense without John Fetterman and all of his all of his strengths and flaws and the, his ability to sort of authentically pre represent them to the electorate. But I do have a question, which is, what do you think are the kind of transmittable lessons from this campaign for Democrats, left challengers, especially kind of people who want to get around these kind of stale categories of what certain kinds of candidates are and what certain kind of campaigns consist of sort of what will you take with you from this campaign that will be usable for the future for other democrats find the biggest candidate the tallest dude you can find no i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> i buy a, that you I need buy a six eight, six eight dude you gotta find a six eight dude no i'm kidding i think i think a lot of it is like and it goes back to what i was saying you know the top of the session here is like go out and talk to people this isn't like this data guru bullshit talk to people listen to people's struggles and let that inform you like once you know the people that can guide you. I think the other thing is like, no pun intended, know your enemy. Talk about your enemy. Identify your enemy. Know who you're going against. Because as we talked about, whether it's Ohio or Trump, these other states, they're going to fill the void. If we don't talk about it, someone's going to fill the void and they'll believe and say, yeah, they're right. My town's gutted because of Joe Biden's fentanyl candy or whatever the hell bullshit yeah. they're going to use. Like, you have to be proactive and like, Telling people things aren't always rosy. Sometimes, and it's not. But at the same time, it's not always doom and gloom. There needs to be a joy, and John always had a joy of politics. But like, people are struggling, and you need to validate that and be like, "Well, here's why, and here's what I'm going to do about it." And that starts by being on the ground, and getting in your truck or your Jeep or your Prius, who, who knows which whichever state <laughs> you live in, and driving around to do this, and listening to people, and talking to people, and it's not easy, but it's it's going to make you a better politician and like, fuck, it made me a smarter fucking operative going to these mm -hmm. towns and listening and getting out of the beltway and getting out of the cities. Like it's really about listening to people because like, this is going to sound like the dumbest thing ever, but like the whole point of electoral politics is representing the people. How the fuck can you represent them? If you're not listening to them, you don't understand them. Like John gets that on like the most core level. And it's, that's something that can be replicated talking about your enemy, talking about the material conditions of why your life is like this is something that can be replicated. Talking about like what you'll do for them in concrete terms can be replicated. Yeah. Not twisting yourself into a fucking pretzel to please everybody can be replicated. And just say, here's where I'm at. Here's what I believe. And here's why. 
Let's talk about it. Let's have a little mini debate. If not, it's cool. It's not rocket science. I have to say, like, one of the things that I keep thinking about as you're talking is, like, there's a question when you run a campaign, which in essence is just a long conversation with the electorate. And there's a question of, like, am I going to treat people like they're capable of goodness and kindness or whether you're only going to activate people's resentments, their unkindness, their capacity for cruelty. And obviously, like, there's a lot we talk about on this podcast that goes into what conservatism, American conservatism consists of today. But one of the undeniable facts about sort of the Trumpist kind of turn in conservative politics, but really it was there before, too, and maybe it's just turned up to 11 here, is like that what Trump is asking of people and Trumpist politicians are asking of people is to give in to just their capacity for cruelty and and for misapprehending each other and treating each other suspiciously. And one of the things that keeps coming through in the way you're describing what, what you guys set out to do with this campaign is that you're asking people to do something else. You're asking people to be as good and kind as they can be. And that that being the sort of basis for that conversation between the candidate and and his audience and the electorate just seems like to me like maybe the thing we need more than anything else oh totally i mean i haven't talked to her about her yet but it's giselle fetterman's wife fetterman's wife for those she is the most special person in politics she's so gifted and it is like people talk about the republicans they say the cruelty is the point you know with giselle it's the love is the point the joy is the point and she would push that to her staff it's embodied in john it's embodied in will never be mean but have fun that is deeply what it is and like it comes from her i could do another fucking 50 minutes just on giselle how brilliant this woman is how <laughs> smart she is but like i mean for those of you listening she was a dreamer she came over here from brazil had a very tough life in childhood and like she runs a place in braddock called the free store all it is is free things for people it fucking rules uh-huh. but like it's about like better things are possible. Let's make that world. It doesn't need to be doom and gloom. Like, yes, there is doom and gloom. People are hurting, but let's talk about beyond that. Once we take on our enemy, what should the world look like? It should look pretty good. We all deserve to have a pretty good baseline here. And like that is from Giselle and her lived experiences and her attitude. And again, as I said, like I am known in the campaign as the brace of prick, but like she even makes me smile. She's she is like and she's changed my worldview and she's changed John's worldview. It's a huge part of it. Yes. I have to admit, uh, Joe, that I think more highly of John in some ways because of her. Totally. I agree. Everything mm-hmm. I know about her and have yeah. learned about her, she's a very special person. You know, that might be a good place to close it out. But I did have one more question for you. Totally. Let's do it. One more. As someone who's from Altoona, the headquarters of Sheets. I love John's, you know, Sheets love. And since you've been on the road with him, in a car with him, traveling around, I just want to ask, does he have a go-to uh, Sheets MTO order? His go-to order, I think he'll get some wraps sometimes. You know, I'll tell you my go-to order. Let's do that. I'm very okay. into it. I am, and let's be clear for the record, I am a deep Sheets over Wawa guy. It's not even fucking close. Me too. Not I, even close. So yeah. first I mosey on over, and this is after campaigning is done tonight. We're getting back on the bus. I've got, you know, eight hours in the bus ahead of me. I mosey on over, get a 24-ounce Miller Lite for like one ninety nine, which is an amazing deal. <laughs> and then I get the uh, app sampler. I'll do fried pickles, cheese curds, fried mac and cheese. And then I get... Uh, this is like probably at like 11 p.m. And then I also get a breakfast croissant, sausage, egg, and cheese croissant. It goes down smooth, baby. It goes down smooth. I agree. I agree. Well, uh, 
Joe, you've been so generous with your time. I hope you can get some sleep in the next few days. I'll sleep when I'm dead. It's fine. <laughs> well, thank you so much again, Joe. Thank you for the insights of the campaign. And, uh, you know, uh, congrats again on the big win. We were thrilled. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Thank you.